Shopify helps you sell at every stage of your business. Like that, let's put it online and see what happens stage. And the site is live. That we opened a store and need a fast checkout stage. Thanks, you're all set. That count it up and ship it around the globe stage. This one's going to Thailand. And that, wait, did we just hit a million orders stage? Whatever your stage, businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for your $1 a month trial at shopify.com slash listen. Blog Talk Radio. spending a portion of your Sunday evening or, or whenever it is you listen to this podcast with us. My name is Rich Sparago. I am known as Mets Killing Me and Met Fan Rich on Twitter. And you are listening to a very special edition of the Metsian podcast with Sam Rich and Mike. Um, it's special because of the guests that I will be introducing in just a moment. But before I do that, let me bring on one of my co-conspirators in the podcast. Mike LaColin is unable to join us tonight, but Mike... Um, I know you'll listen to this um, on in the archive, and uh, and it's just like you're here with us as always, my friend. So, with that said, Sam, Mr. Sam Maxwell, the man we affectionately call the CEO of the podcast, the Brain Trust, <laughs> the podcast guru, all of those things. So, Mr. Sam Maxwell, typically, well, it, it's like a game. Where's Sam? Sam is usually in Manhattan. He could be in Brooklyn. So, Sam, where are you tonight? I am. I'm actually uh, looking out. The window westward towards the uh, the sunset. Although the the sun is now completely on the other side of the uh, of the apartment building that I, that I believe is the other side of my apartment building, uh, and it's just it's it's nice to have this view of Brooklyn. And you know I'm such a city kid that one way or another I love looking out on this this big city of ours. Amen. And um, and let's hope that uh, you know what you're looking at is is some, somewhat of a horizon, and maybe there's some baseball on our horizon, and we'll certainly dive into that topic. But as I mentioned just a moment ago, very special edition tonight. We have an incredible guest with us. We have Perry Barber, who is an umpire, with us. But calling her an umpire is really selling her short because for four decades, Perry has been establishing a lot of first and onlys in baseball umpiring. She's one of very few women to have umpired major league spring training games in the United States and is the only woman so far to have umpired major league exhibitions in both the U.S. and Japan. She's also a Jeopardy! champion. I can't wait to hear about that. And in her former life as a singer, songwriter, guitarist, has written songs recorded by Bette Midler, Dr. Hook, and The Medicine Show and performed as the opening act for Bruce Springsteen, Hall & Oates, and Billy Joel. In 2008, Perry assembled the first and only so far four-woman crew to umpire a Major League Spring Training game, and she remains the only woman yet to have umpired in the Cape Cod League or the Alaska League. She was umpire, umpire supervisor assigner for the Independent Atlantic League for the first four years of its existence, and is still, more than two decades later, its only woman umpire. She's umpired international tournaments in Taiwan, where she drank snake oil 
at an all-night market, as well as in Hong Kong, Japan, and Guam. She was among a select group of umpires chosen in 2018 to work the most prestigious event in women's international baseball, the Women's Baseball World Cup in Vieira, Florida, and for the past 10 years has worked with Justine Siegel's Baseball for All programs for girls and baseball programs all over the world to encourage and train other women to join the umpiring ranks. She currently serves on the board of directors of the International Women's Baseball Center, which is spearheading a drive to build a girls' and women's baseball museum and conference center in Rockford, Illinois, across the street from the historic Bayer, Bayer Stadium, where the Rockford Peaches, one of the teams featured in the Penny Marshall Classic League of Their Own, played. She was also recently appointed director of women's services for the APBPA, the Association of Professional Baseball, Baseball Players of America, the oldest and most venerable baseball assistance organization in the country. After 40 years on the diamond, Perry is hardly slowing down, and she thinks she'll be able to keep going until either of two things happen, a woman or women walk onto a Major League Baseball field to take the lineup cards from managers for the first time, or they wheel her off the field on a stretcher. In the meantime, she is committed to inspiring other girls and women to discover the joys of umpiring and the dreams of the day when she will no longer have to fight to not be the first or the only. That is now within view, and Perry, um, I don't even know what to say after reading that intro because you've done so much in your career. And first, let me say this. Thank you for joining the Metzian Podcast, and how are you tonight? I'm very good, Rich. Thank you. And you you said APBPA very well. It's not easy to say that acronym um, quickly and accurately, but you did it did a great job. It's a wonderful organization, and I'm just incredibly lucky to be sheltered here at the home of Jennifer Madison, who is the president of the APBPA. So I've come to witness in the last three months, which is how long I've been here now, since early March, um, how much work and energy she puts into helping so many former minor league ball players and umpires and corollary personnel. Um, now that they're out of baseball, a lot of those players, you know, never got the million-dollar salaries and were egregiously underpaid anyway when they were playing for minor league baseball. And now that they're out, a lot of their lives just come crashing down around them seriously, and they don't know what to do with themselves, and a lot of them fall into depression and addiction and, you know, non-productive behaviors and Jennifer's group helps helps so many of them with all of that offering them you know programs and access to uh, rehab programs and um, medical assistance and all sorts of guidance and uh, it's just been a real education and a privilege watching her work and help these guys um, most of them are guys, but she she has expanded the reach of the groups, and she took over as president to include women, uh, you know, the wives and the girlfriends and the daughters and families of, of the ballplayers because suffering and depression is not just, you know, an isolated thing. It affects, you know, everybody in the orbit of people who are suffering from those things. So. She's she's been great to let me stay here because we're about 40 miles north of Phoenix in the canyons, 
way out of out of the way where there's not a lot of foot traffic, much less vehicular traffic, and she's right up against a national monument, and it's all just cactus and birds and rattlesnakes. So we have a lot of room to to, to get out and walk around and contemplate how fortunate we are, you know, to be removed from people who have not been observing social distancing. And especially lately, it's been very concerning to me. I mean, as much as I want to be out there protesting and joining with the people that are making their their feelings known, you know, after all these years, like I did that when I was young. I went to that big march in, on Washington in 1969 and was all idealistic and full of hope for the future. And now that I see all these people out there the last 10, 12 days, I think, how the hell did people of my generation screw it up so badly that these people have to be out there all over again? basically protesting the same things. You know, it's just like a variation on a theme. Uh, it, all the injustice and and disparity built into these institutions that we, if we didn't create them, we perpetuated them. And they were the very things that, that we, the people of my generation were protesting, you know, 50 years ago. And so I'm just thrilled to see that, but I'm also concerned because, it's very difficult to maintain social distancing and remember to keep your mask on and things like that when you're out in a heated situation where emotions are running high. So it's a very conflicted existence that a lot of us are living right now. You know, people in my condition, because I, I am at risk for getting the virus if I'm exposed to it because I'm 67 years old, and I have had pneumonia literally dozens of times. So if I get it, I'm going to be in trouble. And for that reason, I am just being extra, extra careful. And, um, uh, you know, everybody's different. And, you know, nobody really knows the nuts and bolts only way to go, you know, how to keep safe, um, how to prevent, you know, yourself and your neighbors and family from getting sick. There's all sorts of advice out there. None of us knows which is the best. So we just have to pick and choose and hope that, you know, our gut instincts as well as, you know, what we learn day to day and our basic intelligence and common sense lead us in the right direction. But it's just awfully hard to figure out how to do this. And thank you for giving me the opportunity to talk about that because I know a lot of umpires that work mostly amateur ball, which I do, although thank you for mentioning that I also work major league spring training because that's always a special time of year for me. And I I appreciate every game that I am out there with uh, players who play at that caliber, you know, that degree of athleticism and grace and composure it's just always a thrill. Um, but it's difficult to try to figure out what protocols to follow. And a lot of umpires I work with to do high school, college, um, summer ball, travel ball, youth leagues, adult leagues, uh, they're back at work already. And everybody's got a different standard of 
um, codes of conduct about what umpires are supposed to be doing or not supposed to be doing, how close we can be to a catcher or um, which umpire covers the foul lines now because they want the plate umpire calling pitches from behind the pitcher, which to me is crazy. But uh, all of these different associations have, have different ideas about, you know, what's going to keep the most number of people safe. Uh, and so, like I said, I, I have to make my own decisions about what's right for me. And frankly, I'm not willing to risk my health yet. Um, from what I've seen, I, I just don't think it's possible to uh, mitigate against the spread of the virus at, at a baseball game and at even an amateur baseball game, you know, where there aren't 30,000 people or tens of thousands of people. But and for that reason, I I said right from the beginning. I think I was saying it back in March that Major League Baseball should have just shut down right then and gotten to work getting over this impasse that they have now reached after three months of you know dilly dallying around and putting on a big blustery show of you know puffing out their chests and seeing which one blinks first and. It's just so unfortunate for, you know, the fans and for the people that depend on Major League and Minor League Baseball, too, because Minor League Baseball is completely shut down. Um, But those people that depend on them for their livelihoods and their economic security, and it's just having such a ripple effect. Um, It's very, very, I don't know, daunting. Uh, we're entering into a whole new world here and we're not going to go back to the way things were. We're just not going to go back. We can't. And frankly, baseball shouldn't. And the the link to the article you sent me by Jeff Passan um, was so right on that, you know, it, it goes way beyond not being able to agree on anything. It, it, and, you know, numbers like what are the owners standing to lose? $500 million if there's no season? That that to them probably doesn't sound like a whole lot, although to people like you and me it does, obviously. But to me, it's a matter of trust and being able to rely on somebody's word and you know granted people change their minds and you know i guess they're permitted to go back on their word because of changing circumstance in some situations but it's got to be foundational trust you know that you at least know well this is somebody that i can rely on to give me the straight stuff and not lie to me not look me in the face and promise me something that they know they cannot deliver um, and so far, there has been very little of that, unfortunately. And a lot of people, of course, are blaming the players, uh, you know, because they make a lot of money and wanting to make just a little bit less seems uh, a bit um, <clears throat> pecunious to uh, people that don't make very much at all and, you know, live paycheck to paycheck. But the reality is that you know, they're fighting for their self-respect, and and they have every right, I think, to demand um, honesty and forthrightness and a, a sense of vision from uh, the executive offices of Major League Baseball. And like I said, unfortunately, 
we've seen very little of that. There's just been no leadership, just delay and stymieing and putting off and dilatory tactics and, you know, putting out letters that don't even get delivered to the agencies that they're allegedly written for. They had that 67-page set of guidelines that they were supposed to deliver to the various organizations, and apparently only four of them ever got it. You know, so what's the point? Um, It just sounds like a lot of unnecessary um, back and forth because without that foundation of trust, nothing's going to get done. Ultimately, it's all just going to be for show. And if something does get done, it won't be what needs to be done. It will just be window dressing and like a Band-Aid on what's really wrong with major and minor league baseball right now, which is that especially the minor league players, don't get paid enough. They're not treated humanely. They're treated like cattle. And uh, as fodder for, you know, the baseball grist instead of as human beings who deserve uh, enough money to live on adequately and health benefits and adequate nutrition and things like that, instead of which they're basically given the cold shoulder and made to feel so devalued for what they what they offer, you know, which is basically their whole lives until they're young adults. I mean, those those kids that make it into minor league baseball are just so super athletic. It's startling. I mean, you know, because I know I see a lot of kids in high school and college, and I I see the difference between, you know, a really good college player and a really good, you know, kid that makes it into pro ball. There's just something that sets professional players apart, and, you know, those are the things that scouts look for. And not all of it is physical. Um, A lot of it, thankfully, now is mental and emotional um, because that all goes into the makeup of a ball player. So... It's just a shame that they're not treated the way they should be, and that extends to umpires. And as long as I've been umpiring and going to umpire school and learning about the completely inadequate respect and pay that minor league umpires have been getting for half a century, and that in spite of several um labor upheavals and a couple of strikes by minor league umpires that really didn't accomplish very much. Uh, the the paradigm continues and it needs to be, you know, like um, defund the police. It needs to be tossed out. Like the baby with the bathwater completely uh, recreated, retooled and um made to answer to the needs of everybody without making some of the people that contribute so much feel like their contributions don't matter and that they're just fungible goods and when they're when they've used up their usefulness so they <laughs> they'll be gone and who will care. And that just I don't like that. I've never liked that. So Baseball can do better. It, it really can do better. And raising these points is not, its you know, it's not me slamming Major League Baseball. I love Major League Baseball. I love the Mets. 
and thank you for doing this podcast. And I appreciate. Uh, I apologize for conflating your um, Bedford and Sullivan with this one. My bad. Uh, I should have realized. Um, and thank you uh, for doing this. But um, yeah, they they have to start treating the people that work for them and that make them a successful organization and a thriving and growing enterprise worthwhile, you know. It's, I just don't understand so much about why the world works the way it does and has worked the way it has as long as I've been alive. There's so much about it that I see that could stand so much improvement and, you know, a lot of it, like I said, just has to be completely dismantled and started over. And I kind of feel that way about, um, well, not completely dismantled, but the the labor agreements have to be um, reached. Between Jay. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you Jay, know what? I've just been yammering on and on, haven't I? So somebody... <laughs> I want to I want to throw this out there and 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 I did want to ask you a question um, that that does have to do with umpiring and kind of has to do with baseball and umpiring and this is and and, and going off of kind of what you were saying um, the thing that was the crazy part about a lot of what is going on out there is that both sides of the political parties are considering in many ways in their own specific types of ways. Uh, major upheaval and the idea of throwing everything out. Um, and, and when you look at it, when you focus it in on specifically umpiring, you know, you could make an argument for uh, uh, athletics uh, being split between genders because of the way the bodies are built. Now, I think certain sports, even like baseball, could lend itself to having inter-sex uh, 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 athletics because of some of the way the positions are and some of the, the finesse and and, and I, I think you could definitely like just looking ahead into the future consider a, a female pitcher uh, really making headway. Uh, but with umpiring, when you look at oh, umpiring, yeah. I, I know I know plenty of women pitchers who can throw faster than Jamie Moyer did. So exactly, <laughs> so exactly. Exactly. But when you look at umpiring, there's really nothing specifically that you that you could say breaks down the way athletics do from between a man and a woman. All you need to do is uh, is be able to pick up the ball. All you need to do is be able to pick up the ball. And so I think more than anything in baseball, more than, more than arguably any job there in baseball, specifically having to do with on field, uh, um, you could say that the patriarchy, if you will, really, it, 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 there's no reason why there can't be a plethora of female umpires out there. Right. Oh, oh say it, Sam. Not just the patriarchy, the old white dude patriarchy. Uh, you know, baseball really needs to work on itself and promote a lot more blacks and brown skin people, especially women, into the executive offices and, um, you know, really pay attention because without those additional perspectives from people of color, they're not going to get it, you know, and that's one reason why I think 
everything is so out of whack right now is because there's so little uh, diversity and so few differences of perspective and opinion, or at least of people who um, suffer the repercussions of, of the lack of those differences that could stand up and say, look, this is what's happening and you need to rectify it and here's how to do it. Uh, instead of which, they it seems like they they kind of live in an echo chamber, you know, surrounded by lawyers instead of people whose voices would be meaningful and constructive. So, yeah, I totally agree, uh, especially when it comes to women. Yeah, but uh, things are getting better, and the people that were impediments and and deliberately obstructive, uh, who of course were mostly men, in the recent cast are now either um, not in baseball anymore, they're dead or old or have dementia or just have moved on. And a lot of the newer generation of umpiring supervisors and evaluators are very um, in favor of promoting women. They just haven't really figured out a way to do it yet um, because I I think once they decided, well, okay, now we're not going to, stand in the way, um, they didn't know how to be proactive about it. They just sort of thought, well, okay, now a woman's going to show up and she's going to be great and we're going to promote her and she'll be uh, in the major leagues seven years. But no, that you know, there's a pipeline and a process through which umpires go, young umpires at the beginning of their careers. And, and careers don't start in pro ball. They start in little league and high school and youth ball and uh, summer ball, things like that, where I started in Little League in California. That's where everybody starts. Nobody starts out in pro ball or major league baseball. It's a long, hard process that umpires have to go through to get seasoned enough and experienced enough to be able to handle the pressures of each succeeding level of baseball from rookie ball all the way up to the major leagues. So it's a very exacting process, and the the supervisors haven't yet fully understood that the way it's going to happen is not to sit around and wait for that woman to show up, but to make a concerted effort to go out and identify women that will make uh, suitable candidates for going to umpire school, which is basically the first step. And um, they're doing that now. They're putting on clinics, uh, I think five or six clinics uh, every year, one one clinic every couple of months that are free and open to any umpire of any race, sexual persuasion, gender fluidity. Um, and what they have not yet done is figured out a way to draw women to those clinics because from those clinics, scholarships, to umpire school in January are awarded, and that's where umpires have to go to be evaluated for jobs in minor league baseball and, you know, leading up to a job as a major league umpire, which takes a a minimum of about eight years now, two years at every level of professional baseball. So you have to be dedicated and work hard and be lucky because the competition is very stiff, and uh, they just have to get more women going to the clinics, earning the scholarships, and going to umpire school so that the ratio of male to female students is not as heavily skewed as it always has been. I mean, which is like the years that I went, 82, 83, 84, 85, 
I was one of either only two or one year there were three of us. So, um, you know, the ratio is about well, <laughs> 120 to one, something like that. And they're only two And so it's not as if it would be a Herculean task. Um, the two schools just have to get together and find, figure out a way to reach out, send the message to women, yeah, come to school, we'll train you and help you. We won't abandon you, which is the way it's been done in the past. Basically, window were, women were viewed as window dressing to the idea that um, baseball was progressing and umpire, umpiring was now welcoming women. And up until about 10 years ago, that, like I said, that was basically just a smoke screen for um, having their heads buried in the sand. So, sorry, you were about hey, to ask something, Sam? No, I, I was going to ask you a loaded question. Do you think oh, women overall, women, do Wait you think, minute. yeah. I told you I only had a whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think that women overall would have better eye, would have a better eye than the men have had? Considering that umpires all the time at the major league level get such, you know, get such crap from for for the job they do. Do you think that you know, women would maybe I'm have a more consistent eye? I'm so glad you asked. You know, because so much of the time I hear people point out biological differences and you know why women shouldn't be playing baseball at least with or against men. You know, which may be true for most women, but they're always going to be outliers. And, um, you know, people say, well, you're you're so small. How can you umpire between those gig- uh, behind those gigantic catchers? And I explain, well, we're not actually behind the catcher. We're between the batter and the catcher in what's known as the slot, that little space that exists between, a, a, say, a right-handed batter and a catcher, and that's why the umpire is always on the the catcher's left because we're in that little slot where we can see the pitcher, see all of home plate, and see the pitch coming in as it crosses the plate. That's the ideal setup for a plate umpire. And um, being properly set up has nothing to do with size. If the catcher is too far over in the slot, I just say, hey, if you want me to call strikes for your pitcher, please move over a couple of inches. And most of them are smart enough to do it without protest. Um, And the ones that aren't, you know, figure it out after a couple of balls that they wish I'd been able to see. (laughs) So, um, but anyway, yeah, there's no reason. And, and after having conducted clinics with, I probably dozens of times, thanks to Justine Siegel, who heads up an organization called Baseball for All that is wonderful and creates opportunities for girls to play tournament baseball um, several times a year at different places around the country, including the one big one, Nationals, which last year attracted 400 girls from ages 8 to 18. And it's just absolutely fabulous working with her and seeing all those girls out there playing. And and we always get as many women umpires as we can. And I think last year I had to skip it because I was sick with kidney stones. But uh, I heard there were, I think, 14 or 15 women umpires there last year. So it's, it's a really great thing. And, and um, I she allows me, when I do tournaments with her, at which I assign or acquire umpires, 
um, she allows me to conduct umpiring clinics with all of the ball players, and it's just so oh, it's just so adorable to see little eight and ten year old girls doing ball and strike drills, and you know, calling played, and and we do this drill called whackers, which are plays at first base where it's so close between the the ball being in the fielder's glove and the runner's foot touching the bag that, I mean, you literally could toss a coin to figure out if the runner is safe or out. Um, those are what we call them whackers or um, uh, close ones anyway. So when I do those whacker drills with the girls uh, and I think back to all of the whacker drills that I did all of the times I went to umpire school, uh, which I have done six times so far, so basically that's a year and a half of going to umpire school, just going to school. And even most major league umpires spend probably no more than two or three months doing that. So in in my experience observing whacker drills with the male students at umpire school uh, and with the young girls, 8 to 18, at Justin's tournament, I have to say, yeah. I think we see things better. I don't know if it's visual or just brain processing, but the the average of accuracy for drills at umpire school with the guys, and granted, they're all adults. They're, they're not children. It may also have something to do with youth. I'm not really sure. I just, this is my personal observation. The accuracy percentage for, for the men is about, 65%. Two out of three umpires will get that call correct. One won't. Or if you want to extend it, say seven will get it right, three will get it wrong. Or every umpire will get one, three of those calls wrong. Which, when you're an umpire, you, that's not a good percentage, okay? You want to get, you know, one out of 30 wrong, maybe, something like that. And the girls, when I've done those drills with them, I mean, the first couple of times I did it, I I was just sort of amused and wondering, hmm. And then the more times I did it with different groups of girls, I've just become convinced that, yeah, there is something really special um, brain-wise, the way our brains work, the way we're wired maybe, that just allows us to process all of this information um, faster and more efficiently than the men do because the girls, the accuracy, uh, the accuracy rate, I am not kidding you, 95%. It's, it's mind-boggling to me. And like I said, it's purely anecdotal, but I, I've seen it with my own eyes. And, yeah, I'm, I'm convinced that we, we're better than the guys when it comes, when it comes to seeing something happen visually before us, uh, processing that information and being able to translate it into the action and the motions that signal what is going on in our brains and the result that would be a conclusion that we come to. And, you know, there's a lot about that particular thing, just making a call um, that involves a lot of uh, brain work for an umpire. So, um, and I think that women the ones that are um, dedicated enough to becoming umpires, um, because right off the bat, most of us recognize that, you know, we're going to face some obstacles that men 
usually don't have to, including, you know, contempt and derision from our partners and from within our own organization for no reason other than that we're women and still invading a kind of a, you know, mostly male domain. But changing minds, you know, one woman umpire at a time, I'm happy to say. And now there are lots of us. When I I started 40 years ago, there were very, very few. But now there are lots of us. And all over the world, I've worked with really, really excellent women umpires in Hong Kong and um, Guam and Taiwan and Japan. And last year, the women's were, or uh, two years ago now, at the Women's World Cup, which was held here in the U.S. for the first time. And we had, I think, 14 or 15 women umpires from, from all over the world. And it was thrilling. Very thrilling. But I'm still now annoyed that... that the Cape Cod League and the Alaska League haven't had a woman umpire since my tenure there. They could do a lot better about that. But that's because there still aren't a lot of women doing um, NCAA baseball uh, around the Northeast or even on the Atlantic coast. I think um, Kelly Elliott Dine out in Ohio is doing uh, NCAA baseball now, I'm happy to say. But very few women are doing college ball, and that's uh, those are the ranks from which the Cape Cod League draws its umpires. You have to be NCAA certified. And so hopefully that will change sooner rather than later, before I die anyway. But, yeah, Sam, yeah, women are better than men. Down with men. I hate men. We're going to invade and take away everything from you. Down with the patriarchy. So. <laughs> Down with the patriarchy. I love it. No, I love it. And, and, you know, speaking of umpires in no, general. It um, is exactly the opposite, I promise. You have nothing to fear. It is not going to be an invading horde <laughs> of shrieking, estrogen-crazed banshees, ruining, feminizing, and taking over the baseball diamond and changing everything about it because we couldn't cut it as real baseball players. No, hey, we're perfectly happy playing amongst ourselves, and we're beginning to now. I mean, there are leagues all over the planet now. They're they're starting a women's baseball league in Great Britain in the U.K. They've had one in Australia for years, a very successful one, and also a, a professional women's league in Japan that is just about ready to start up again from what I understand. So, you know, women oh, are getting it done true. everywhere. Yeah, there is well, precedent. Is, is we true. are not unprecedented. And for that reason, you just have to view it as, yeah, we're not here to ruin it for anybody. Or It's not a zero-sum game. Every contribution that we make, every game that we work, every partner that we work with, we we bring out something better. We demand better. And we make everything better. At least that's the way I feel about it. Yeah, up with my sisters. So. <laughs> well, no, that that's. I wish women ruled the world. Frankly, I think we'd be in a lot better shape than we are than we are now. And that's not saying that every woman head of state is perfect or, you know, not a crook. I'm sure there are plenty who are and have been. But, um, yeah, I think things would be a lot well, better if there were more I... women leaders. Uh, Rich, I'll, I'll pass it on to you after afterwards, but I'll just say that one of them is still on the loose from the Epstein case, but that's just because it's on Netflix and my mom just watched it. Disgusting stuff. Back to you, Rich. 
Uh, oh, God, I know. I saw it a couple of weeks ago. And you know what? All I could think of was very, you know, sort of self-centeredly is that how lucky was I that I never ran into him or or that woman, Kim, that he had out, that he sent out scouting for young girls because I, I grew up just like four blocks from his apartment and went to Hewitt, uh, one of the private schools. He taught at Dalton, which is not very far geographically, and I ran in the same circles as all those girls who went to the private schools in New York. Oh, jeez. And I just, I yeah, I, I am just so lucky that, you know, I never had to be um, involved with any of that because I can just imagine how uh, how horrible it it was for every one of those girls to be induced to go somewhere with a promise of you know either money or stardom or what you know and uh, having that nagging feeling in the back of your mind that yeah well you know I'll just be on red alert but then somehow being suckered into it out of fear and intimidation and I mean holy cow I that scene where the woman says you see right inside this brick facing on his apartment here on East 71st Street Railroad you see that right inside that is a is a safe room that's you know screened by a, aluminum or you know metal things and it has cameras set up in every room including the bathrooms of that townhouse that he had he was taping everybody doing everything and that's how he built his empire he built it on blackmail he didn't build it on being smart i mean he was smart and it's unfortunate that he channeled his his his, uh smarts into um taking advantage of people the way he did because i guarantee you the first big money he made or the first big entree that he gained into the financial sector and his fancy job on Wall Street that apparently he was good at but um used it as a you know as a smoke screen and a stepping stone to um creating this empire of um you know abduction and rape and constant torture of thousands of young girls in these sex rings that you know he was either you know an offshoot or I mean yeah it's just it's disgusting and that so many of the people that were in collusion with him um, to keep these uh, enterprises going and destroying so many people in the process, so many young girls. It's just uh, it's horrible to contemplate it. You know, it makes me feel very helpless but grateful at the same time that, you know, like I said, I lucked out and uh, never got that invitation. And God, because who knows, you know, what would have happened if, if I'd gone, I, I've been in a lot of situations that have made me feel very uncomfortable. And worse than that, I'm a sexual assault survivor. I was raped on a, on a subway platform in New York in 1977. And, you know, it's not something that you ever really get over. But you just learn to manage the 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 crazy emotions that are generated by what happened and the feelings of, of shame and helplessness that uh, drove me to behave the way I did during the assault and to, um, you know, just finally give up on ever finding my assailant and learn how to make my peace with it. Um, 
you know, because I don't want to hate all men. I actually love men. I, I do. I have several um, men in my life that I would lay down my life for. I love them so much. And I can't say that about you and me yet, Sam, but, you know, there's there's a possibility because <laughs> I like the way you think and I, I, I love your sensibilities. No, I do. You know, ha- having friends like you that I know through, uh, what is it, um, the New York Giants? society that we both belong to our mm-hmm. friend Gary Mintz and you know we have other interests but things that draw us together as friends and allies and you know that's really what makes the world go round is relationships that you can rely on and trust and you know trust to be honest and you know that doesn't always involve saying yes you're right about everything or yes you're wonderful all the time it involves just being honest, but always, you know, being thoughtful as well. And, you know, choosing to be kind when cruelty is, is an option, but, you know, why take it? And that's so much of what characterizes so much of current events these days is, you know, cruelty over common sense even, you know. When you see videos of cops walking through, just people standing there, and all of a sudden starting to club them with their batons. There's a kid standing apart from his friends with his hands in his pockets being shot with a rubber bullet in the head and, you know, now probably suffering irreparable brain damage as as other people I've seen. Um, it's just scary. There's no reason for it. Those people were doing absolutely nothing. You know, they did not pose any kind of a threat. And and so much of that attitude is what drives racism. It's fear. It's not actual hatred. It's fear. And um, conquering the fear and the underlying reasons for those fears is a big hurdle that we have to overcome. That instead of seeing our our, our black brothers and sisters and friends and, and fathers and mothers and aunts and uncles and nieces and um, young children that we interact with, instead of seeing them as threats or, you know, scared of because we don't understand them or, you know, we don't like rats or whatever, you know. Um, we have to learn to overcome that and, and connect with our better angels and, um, you know, get past all that. It's time. You know, there are so many different tribes across the planet, across the universe, and we should respect tribal differences and honor them as the tribes do within themselves. And we shouldn't seek to overpower them or or integrate them or um, conflate them with something else. There are so many life forms on planet Earth. You know, we really should honor each and every one of them. You know, and... Okay, people are going to say, well, what about the insects and all that? You know, I'm talking in a broader sense, human beings and and animals and the life forms that we interact with. Um, But it's not happening right now. But maybe it will be happening. Maybe this is the beginning of a great awakening that we have needed. And George Floyd, we will remember you as being the impetus for something good. Um, so I, I hope that his family can take comfort in that. Um, I try to, because when I see what happened to him, it really 
makes me want to cry and what ha- what's happened to so many black people just for for living and doing what people do and going about their daily lives. And, uh, you know, we've got to change that. Got to change it. And that, that means reaching out and, you know, uh, bringing more um, more perspective and more <clears throat> differences of skin color and opinion into our own lives at an individual level. Um, so do that. It, it's not an not an insurmountable obstacle to do that. And we can stop teaching our children to hate. You know, we, hate has to be carefully taught, like um, Oscar Hammerstein. Uh, was it Richard Rogers? Um, anyway, okay, there I am waxing a little bleakly poetic. So, um, yeah, baseball could do a lot better, and now is is a great time for the the people who are in a position to do something productive and positive for the benefit of as many people as possible not for a small group of owners or, um, you know, billionaires, but for everybody connected to baseball, down to, you know, the fan who can't afford to go to a major league baseball game because it costs $400 to take a couple of kids, uh, which is ridiculous. And now with the contracture of the minor leagues, it's getting harder to take children to a minor league baseball game. Um but I see, I see some good coming out of that anyway. Um, that a lot of the towns that have those minor leagues that are going to be de-affiliated will still support them as an as an independent league of some sort or other. Um, there are several pretty successful independent leagues around the country, and I worked for one of them, the Atlantic League, and that was one of the most fun four years I ever spent umpiring. Um, from 1998 until 2001. And um, so I I hope that people will continue to support those teams and um, put whatever finances are needed into uh, restoring and saving ballparks that that need it to render them safe and, you know, to come up with guidelines so that people can still go out and enjoy a baseball game in public and, you know, not be limited to watching it on screen at home. I want to get back out there so bad, but I'm just not willing to risk my health yet and, you know, people that would be around me if I were sick without being, without knowing I were, which we all know can happen. Um, and so I don't want to be a nexus. I want to be an umpire. Well, you, know, you raised a good, a good point. The good thing is that high school, high, other, you know, leagues are starting up, like I said, enough leagues and umpires are getting together, putting their heads together and working to find solutions to get games going again. Um, but I'm I'm just gonna sit back and, and watch what happens because like I said, I'm I'm I may be a little overly concerned but I'd rather err on the side of caution and wind up not being sick because I was a little too, you know, fanatic about it than not careful enough. So that's my attitude. But I'm entitled well, to it. I'm 67 years old, so uh, I've earned it. You definitely have. And and a question I wanted to ask, so you <laughs> touched on something, Perry, that was one of the questions I wanted to get to was, you know, we, we and I do want to get into the finances because you mentioned that, and I definitely want to touch on that, but I want to go right to what you just said about, 
your personal lack of comfort with umpiring in the COVID era, which is for all the reasons you've explained, makes complete sense. My question is, we hear a lot about, well, you know, the, the safety protocols have to be in place for the players and all of that, but what about umpires? And and do you think you're umpiring the group of which you're a part? Do you think there would be a significant number of umpires who maybe are in high risk groups, for whether it's age, whether it's pre-existing conditions, who might say, "Hold on a minute, you know, you, filled, you figured it all out for the players. That's great. I'm not comfortable being on top of the catcher and the batter at the same time. I have a, you know, asthma. I have heart condition. I have diabetes." Do you think we would see that if we come back to baseball? Yeah. Well, it, 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 it's a conflict. I'm sure a lot of umpires are feeling very conflicted about it. But, um, the, you know, we're all so anxious to get back out there and get working that I'm sure a lot of them set aside their misgivings in favor of just, you know, taking a chance. Um, and I, I'm not judging them for doing that. I can't judge them because I may be doing the same thing, you know, two weeks from now or a month from now. I don't know. Right now, like I say, uh, I'm, I'm not. I'm just not willing to take the chance for my own health, much less anybody else's around me. Even though I did manage to get tested um, two or three weeks ago, I got tested out here in Arizona and found out that I was negative for both the virus and antibodies, which I I was actually convinced that I had had it because I was so sick for almost two months back in January and February with something way beyond any flu I had ever had in my life that um, when news of the virus started hitting, I thought, wow, that probably was what I had. But it turned out not to be so. I don't have antibodies. I obviously don't have any immunity. And um, because of my precarious issues with my lungs and having had pneumonia so many times, I just don't want to take a chance. So, but, um, yeah, a lot of umpires, I'm sure, are very torn. And, you know, for that reason, like I said, I can't judge them. I'm not going to say they're being stupid or, you know, careless or thoughtless of, of everybody around them. Um, who knows? I just don't know. I, I, I have to do what I think is best for me and, um, you know, for my peace of mind. And of course. You know, and, and absolutely, uh, absolutely. And that's the one part about this whole thing we don't hear a lot about is, you know, all the players, you know, we heard from a couple of players who said, you know, that they have, they, they might be in high-risk categories, whatever the reason. Uh, but there are a lot of people who have to put this show on. Umpires are right there with the players in terms of necessary. And if the players, right. there you know. There are so many moving parts, exact so many. And so many right. un, un, variables that can't be predicted or uh, guarded against. It's just impossible. And I think it was, you know, magical thinking right from the beginning to ever suppose or plan for baseball, Major League Baseball coming back in 2020. Um, But I guess hope superseded uh, common sense or practicality. And, you know, too bad because now here we are where it's probably not going to come back anyway. And they've wasted a lot of time and created a lot of unnecessary additional 
hostility between bargaining entities that will carry over into negotiations next year when the um, basic agreement expires and only you're going to go south in a hurry um, because, you know, they they nobody's willing to compromise. Everybody's standing on principle and, yeah, it's it's accomplished zero. So there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way. I don't know, replacing Tony Clark, replacing Rob Manfred, or maybe not even replacing them, just having somebody replacing them at the, at the negotiating table. Exactly, and you went exactly where I want to go with this, okay? And this is something I'm going to want both your and Sam's comment on because I personally find this article incredibly informative that I sent you. And I'm, it's so long and the numbers are so detailed – I'm going to paraphrase them. I'm going to give a couple of nuggets that we could react to. And then, Perry, I'd oh, like yeah, you to it was comment. Great. Yeah. Isn't it amazing? So, so mm-hmm. let me summarize. So, yeah. the league is saying, Major League Baseball is saying, you want to play at your full prorated salaries, we'll play 48 games. We're going to lose about $640,000 per game played with no fans. Okay. So, what that means is the owners themselves have articulated. We are willing to lose $460 million, that's 640000 times the number of total games that will be played in a 48-game season. We will lose four sixty. Let's go. The players are yeah, saying – Yeah, rounded up, say, $500 million. Yeah. Exactly, so five hundred, half a billion. So the players are saying, hold on a minute, let's play 82 games. Well, the, the owners are saying, well, wait a minute. If we play 82 games, we're going to lose, round it up, to about $800 million. So about $300 million more, $320 million more, whatever the number. So what's, what's at stake here? Now, I know this is money that I will never see in my life. You know, I'll lose $100 million, but, and it's someone else's money, easy for me to say, but let's talk about this. The gap between the two asks, the gap is $326 million, according to Jeff Passan, okay? And if you read this article... He, is, he gives you why that number is correct, and it's basically undisputed. These numbers would not be disputed by either side. So if the gap is $326 million, let me give you this for perspective. This is a $10 billion industry. $326 million is 3.6% of that number. Right. They are holding the game hostage, and I'll be blunt with that. They are holding the game hostage, both sides, for 3.6% of their typical yearly revenue. When you look at it like that, it drives you insane that they cannot come to the table and say, look, it's $3.6 billion. Players suck it up. You take $326 million. Players, you take a sacrifice of $180 million. Owners, you take a sacrifice of $180 million. We're back to playing baseball. But they won't do it. And when it's 3.6% of revenue, even though it's a big number, what that tells you is it's not like you said, Perry, it's not about the dollars, it's about the mistrust, it's about the acrimony, and it's about the fact that neither side is willing to look like they're being defeated by the other, and that's what's holding this up right now, and it's frustrating. So Perry, please your comments on that. Well, I think MLD and the Major League Baseball Players Union and the umpires union, which should be included in the talks, yep. they should all hire women lawyers to negotiate. <laughs> and I guarantee you within two days, 
they'll have an, an agreement, and baseball will get going again. So Bring that's it what on. I think. <laughs> Bring it on, Sam. What do you think? I think, like, I, I can see the bald, white uh, glasses lawyer right now in my head. You know, as as the antithesis of what she's talking about, <laughs> you know. So, um, whereas, like, I know that, the, and and I, I, you know, my mom watches the Good Fight with uh, Christina Baranski, and that's who I picture just rolling in there, uh, uh, just being like, "All right, this is what we're doing, boys." <laughs> so, you know, like to, in terms of what she said, that's that's where I go there, uh, but. With um, uh, just in general, you know, I in terms of the article that you sent, and I mentioned this before, Rich. Uh, you know, I, I I'm not sure whether this means that the players are the ones that need to be giving up this 326 million dollars. You know, I just think that the owners, you know, and 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 listen, man. We have to remember this also has to do with lifestyle, you know, and this is used in divorces, this is used in lawsuits, this is used in, in, in you know, and, and whenever we, we roll our eyes when it's just like, you know, they're used to a certain lifestyle, they need to keep that up, that's why they need, need this type of money, you know. Everybody involved, whether it's players or owners, are used to a certain lifestyle. So this is what we're keeping up here as well. You have to think about it from the individualistic standpoint too, as well as even more so what we've been talking about, the, the, you know, the, the people who, and, and, and the players I think are probably the most sympathetic to this from the minor league standpoint uh, that have just been just completely uh, uh shellacked by the financial yeah. pyramid of this entire system. So, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it, but from the, with, you know, you're looking at lifestyle and being used to it from the owner's perspective versus the player's perspective, you still have to side for me on the player's side because the owners are talk. We're talking about like you know the the, the jet they need to take uh, for thirty thousand dollars every time, uh, uh, as often as they do. You know little things like that that I, I I don't even need. You know that's the first thing that comes to my head, and that's really the only thing I need to mention. It you understand what I'm saying? There's some big level stuff here that we can't even understand that they want to maintain as well as legacy. Uh, you know, like even if you look at what the Wilpons are doing right now, they're trying to figure out what the legacy is, and they're trying to get billions of dollars so they can take care of generations, generational wealth. So there's a lot of stuff mm. here, but at the same time, I don't know whether I think that the players are the ones that need to be sacrificing that $326 million, Rich. What I think... Uh, it, you know, that $326 million can be negotiated for is deferment. And, you know, deferments worked out as infamously for Bobby Vinia, as we found out. Um, so I think, it, you know, I, I, I think owners have figured out that that's way too much money, the Vinia type of deals. Uh, but I, I think that things can probably be worked out in that way 
without the players completely sacrificing that 326, Rich. Well, and, oh, and again, I wasn't suggesting they should. I was saying it, it, maybe they split it, maybe the owners absorb it, because the other thing we haven't talked about, I don't care how it gets done at this point. When, when I read this article, I was inflamed by the fact that when he puts it that it's 3.6% of a typical year's revenue, and what that tells me is that it tells everybody is that this is myopic thinking. This is a this is about the fight. It's not about the outcome. It's about the fight. They neither side wants to blink. They don't trust each other, and nobody wants to look five feet down the road at the future of this game. And you could tell me why should guys worry about the future when they have short careers, but they're only going to be as good as the umpires or anybody else as good as the industry. And and if they if they shut this game down this year, they are going to look so bad. And, and, maybe- and can, I, can I also say, Rich, sorry, what you're talking about is that all these guys normally, whether it's uh, announcing or whether it's, it's uh, involved in the game, and, you know, we're talking about the need for more women in this game. So you're talking about down the line, not only are they jeopardizing the game, but they're also jeopardizing their own jobs as they face, you know, better competition. Well, exactly. And then when the other leagues have figured it out, when basketball and hockey are coming back, the NFL is like, the NFL is whistling by the graveyard. Like, no problem here. We're, we're playing football. No, no problem with fans. We won't see if that plays out. But, um, but this, is, this is very short-sighted thinking. I know that I'm not saying anything people don't already know. It's very short-sighted thinking on both of their parts, and they look like bumbling idiots at this point, and they're aggravating their, yeah. their fan base is probably eroding as we speak, and they're aggravating the ones they haven't eroded away yet. And, and they really have to figure this thing out. Now, my next question for both of you, Perry, dying to get your, your take on this. So let's just say 48 games, no. I mean, no. I don't, even, I don't think it will become that. But if the season realistically ends up between 65 and 80 games, in your honest opinions, start with you, Perry, is that, and let's say a few players sit out, let's say a few umpires sit out, you see what I'm saying. The product will be a very short season, less than half a season in all likelihood, with some players sitting out, maybe some minor league umpires because the major league umpires are uncomfortable. Does this season become, as Passon said in his article, I'll use his word, farcical? So, Perry, what do you think? Exactly. Does it become farcical? Hmm. Well, uh, I have mixed feelings about that. I mean, it, it would become farcical if you're a baseball purist and, and insist that Major League Baseball can be played and umpired only by, you know, previously certified Major League caliber players and umpires. Um when, for instance, I work with plenty of umpires that could certainly handle working major league baseball. I work with umpires doing major league spring training games all the time. And granted, they're not as high pressure as regular season baseball games, but, um, you know, they could handle it. Uh, the thing is the experience using the technology with the, um, you know, the replay and things like that is a learning process. That I don't know if somebody that was doing college ball could jump right into nowadays, um, but the way they would be able to handle working the game itself, other than that, would would be I'm sure pretty competent. So uh, I, I have mixed feelings about 
um, saying that it would be a farce because I have a lot of respect for umpires that work college and high school games that would be called upon to substitute if that were the case in those instances. Because um, to me, it wouldn't be a farce. It would just, sort of, you know, they wouldn't necessarily do a terrible job anyway. We just have to see, I guess. But in in years, I think they had um, college umpires working the '84 um, playoffs between the Cubs and the San Diego Padres. I seem to recall, and there were a couple of plays where, yeah, there was no plate umpire at home for a play at the plate. It looked pretty bad. Uh, who knows why that happened? College umpires are definitely capable of calling plays at the plate and doing proper rotations, but I, I still don't even know why that happened. But um, I guess if you're a true fan, you would say, yeah, it's kind of a farce, but maybe you'd be desperate enough to watch baseball, any baseball, that you'd be happy to watch it anyway. Uh, I might be, if it, if it gets to that, if, it, if this goes on much longer. You know, I don't even have TV where I am. All I have is an iPad on which I uh, can occasionally watch videos. Um, the, the Wi-Fi up here is a bit spotty. So I, I'm not, you know, up minute to minute up to date on current events. But what I see on Twitter and Facebook is uh, very interesting and, you know, I have to process how much of it is true, how much of it is staged or circulated by bots and whatever. Um, very interesting time to be alive and, and not have TV. I, I feel like I'm not, um, I'm not influenced by the poison that so much of TV is infested with these days, even when it's, you know, from the perspective that I identify with, it's still just seems like too much. Oh, bring back Terry Mason, you know. <laughs> Maybe you're right. Maybe I you're better off. They actually are bringing. They actually are bringing Terry Mason back. Like, uh, did did you know that? Oh well, yeah, I know. I I when I do okay. that TV, I actually <laughs> watch that show twice a day. Um, he's on Me TV. At uh, what is it, um, eleven thirty? I think from eleven thirty. No, no, I, I mean like H, HBO. HBO is bringing oh, back right. a live I saw that. Yeah. action. I saw that on my Amazon reboot. Yeah, I'm curious to see that. Yeah. Rich, what do you think of a reboot yeah. of Perry Mason? You know, I never watched it as a kid, and and I um, so I don't know much about it. I know it's a lawyer show, and I know he always like day at the end with some wild fact, you know, that somebody told them or whatever, but I don't think I've right. ever seen some that. dramatic turn of events in the courtroom. Yeah. Well, right. Listen, right. my cousin, my cousin, William Tallman was the district attorney who, who opposed Perry Mason and most of the shows he portrayed Hamilton Berger, the perennially losing Hamilton Berger. Um, uh, yeah. My cousin. <laughs> oh, Wow. Wow. Yeah. William Thomas. What a tie-in. Yeah. So, what a tie-in. Well, there you go. Um, and, Sam, that was like prob- probably uh, you didn't realize where the significance it would have when you mentioned that Perry Mason was coming back, right? The tie-in was completely well, – you know, uh, Yeah, and not only that, but Cousin Tim uh, – excuse me, Cousin Bill, Bill William Tallman was his name. He was – I think he was the very first – famous Hollywood actor 
to make a public service announcement about the dangers and consequences of smoking cigarettes back in in the mid-1960s when he was Um, dying of lung cancer. And just a few weeks before he died, he made a series of public service announcement commercials that played for years and influenced who knows how many people to quit smoking. And um, uh, and his son, Tim, is now a Los Angeles police officer. officer bless him, you know, a good, good person um, doing good work. There are police officers who do that. And uh, he also has influenced people to quit smoking through his father's message. So together they've saved thousands of lives, you know, long beyond um, my cousin's living presence here among us. Mm-hmm. So I like to think of that when I when I watch Perry Mason. But it's still doing a lot of people a lot of good. They're still here, thankfully, isn't he? Um, and also no, that, that because is- of Della Street. The Della Street character, oh, I just love her. She she is more than just an appendage. She is a part of Terry's ability to solve these complex cases that nobody else can unravel. Della is always there to steer him in the right direction. And she just is so practical and, um, you know, such a take-charge woman. Oh, I just love watching the show for that. would just be Della Street. In action and the relationship, you know, you know, uh, you know. Uh, no, I was just going to say uh, that, uh, Rich, that, that um, I, I, you know, considering that I'm writing about uh, Bedford and Sullivan, as you mentioned, Perry, uh, uh, you know, I need to watch this show because it takes place in the era that that uh, I am going to be writing about. Yeah, is that a screenplay that you're writing that you, that you have yes. on your Facebook page? What is? It's a screenplay. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, Ben right, well, Sullivan is is a a, uh, a pilot movie slash uh, a television series that I hope to expand on as I as I keep thinking about the idea. And luckily, I'm thinking and looking at I'm. I'm finally working more on a daily basis than I, I ever arguably have on it because, uh, you know, of Just for you. How, how, how life goes. <laughs> yeah, because um, just from reading the first couple of paragraphs, I want to see more. <laughs> thanks, Perry. That's, that's the desired effect, right, Sam? So, um, so Perry, I, I wanted to take advantage of, of the fact we have you on and, and it, you know, you've done so much in, in your career um, but I, I had a question I wanted to ask you. Um, I, I, you've probably ejected players from games. I mean, if you've umpired as long as you have, that's natural. It's like part of the job. <laughs> but I'd like to ask yeah. you about, if you could think of one epic ejection and, and what happened. Like, in other words, what, what, like was it a ball and strike where the, where the batter showed you up by drawing a line? It was over here. Was it that? Was it um, a batter? Was it a, a manager throwing a water cooler? Just, just if you could think about an epic ejection, what what was that like? Probably when I was still pretty young and inexperienced. I think it was actually 1983, so I'd been umpiring really only two years uh, with any degree of training. And I was umpiring in a league out in Utah. Um, and the umpires were supposed to get paid, and so were the players. But 
it, it turned out to be one of these fly-by-night, you know, leads that springs up and then the uh, quote-unquote owners, you know, run off and leave the players holding the bag and nobody gets paid and everybody does. So anyway, that's pretty much, much what this was. It was just kids out there playing, hoping to get noticed and, you know, get a contract with the Rio League. And um, I was in Salt Lake City, and they had a manager named Angelo Cerrone and um, a kid who was the kid brother of, uh, who was it, Glenn Hubbard, who played for the Braves. Oh. He, had a, yeah, yeah. he had a kid brother who was playing, playing for this manager. And I, I must have called him, I don't know, I, I called him out or safe on a play, and, and the manager came out and just flipped out on me. And I wound up ejecting him because he was just a little bit of overkill when your veins are popping out of your neck and your eyeballs are bulging out. You know, it's just unnecessary. I've always regarded it as such. And my way of uh, ratcheting down that level of bad energy is just basically to let it run itself out. So I'll just, you know, let a manager spew for a while, and when it gets to the point where he says a magical thing, you know, unforgivable, uh, and I have to toss him, then I'll toss him. But until then, I'll give him every opportunity to stay in the game because I don't like writing injection reports. And when you toss somebody, you have to write an injection report, which is paperwork, which I like to avoid. So, but anyway, so, okay, so Perry, has, anybody, has anybody ever... Perry, has anybody ever gotten really, you know, offensive? Well, he did, but I didn't know it because um, he, like I said, he stood there for more than a minute until my partner ran over and got him away from me, which a partner should be doing right away, really. Um, And then after the manager left, my partner came running back to me and started kind of brushing off my cheek which I didn't like at all. I don't like, you know, for my partner to touch me when I'm out there. It just doesn't send a good message. And I said, what are you doing? And I jumped away from him, and he said, you've got tobacco on your face. And I'm like, okay, that's fine. Just leave it alone. So I I guess we finished the game, and when I went into the dressing room and looked at my face, it was, oh, man, it was gross. And I didn't realize it because they were like little flecks, but there were a lot of them everywhere. And uh, I, I was pretty disgusted that I had, you know, let that happen. So, I, but it, it didn't, I guess I just didn't feel like, uh, you know, when the adrenaline is flowing, you don't feel things the way you do normally. And you're not focused on certain feelings the way you are on others. It, it's weird the way that happens. Um, so I guess I just missed that. But. You know, I realized it was pretty intense if he's standing there spewing tobacco at me. But I've never been physically assaulted, thank goodness. Um, Except once by a woman's softball coach, which kind of surprised me. She just kind of gave me a shove, and I was surprised, you know, that it was actually a woman who assaulted me, not a man. You're not allowed to make any physical contact. Well, women can be very territorial. You would be surprised. And I think it's what's kept a lot of women from advancing in fields that were previously male-dominated that are now beginning to be 
um, uh, to uh, welcome, you know, women like baseball. You know, they now have coaches and uh, batting coaches and things like that uh, in, uh, you know, in positions that women never occupied previously. So, um, you know, it's a good thing. So, Perry, another question I have, thank you for that. Another question I had for you was cultural different, cultural differences. So you've umpired in Japan and Taiwan, and, and I have to be honest, I have not watched a lot of baseball. I know people are watching the Korean Baseball League these days because that's uh-huh. all we have, and I, I have not done that. But I'll ask you culturally, right, when you're over there umpiring games, my perception is that the players are much more polite. I've seen, and I believe it's Korean baseball, where they bow to the umpire when they, uh, they, they acknowledge the umpire when, they about, when they're about to come to bat. So is your pers- am, am I right in saying that culturally it's more of a respectful game, it's more of a respect for the authority of the umpire in Asia, or is that some, am I off on that? In my personal experience, yes, very much so. Um, I was shown nothing but respect um, on the field and off when I was in Japan. I was there umpiring in 1989 and 1990. And uh, I'm sure I didn't get every call right, but I never had a manager come out and, uh, you know, pop a vein um, yelling at me that I screwed up. It was a great experience. I don't know if that happens with every umpire. I know there are a couple of American umpires that worked over there. Um, Lou Lou one of the De Niro um, sons, who uh, I think was touched by a player and didn't receive adequate backup from the league or or protection or something, and he he left, um, you know, in a bad humor, shall we say. thinking that he had been ill-treated, which, you know, I can't say as I blame him. I probably would, too, if I complained that somebody gave me a shove and there were no consequences for it. There should be, you know, players and coaches shouldn't be allowed to touch umpires. And, you know, I make a point of not touching them. And some umpires touch the catchers when they're the plate umpire, but I, I frown upon that practice and I... You know, if I'm working with somebody who does that, I'll always ask them why they do it. And I'll come up with some, you know, usually ridiculous reason, like, oh, I do it for balance, when really you can see they're not doing it for balance at all because by the time they put their hand on the catcher, they're already balanced. So there's no reason for them to do it. They just do it like some little frills. Um, I don't like frills. When I umpire, I just like no frills, you know, let's get this done you know, no blips and, um, you know, uh, unintended um, blow-ups, flare-ups over little stuff, uh, none of that. I just like to see a game get played and for you know, the players to play and enjoy themselves and be safe and the same thing for the spectators and for everybody to enjoy the spectacle and the atmosphere and the wonder and the magical mystery of baseball. And being one with the game and the ball, and yeah, it's all, all very zen. Uh oh, what happened? Hello? No, I'm here. I'm here. Oh, good. Hey, okay. hey. we're all, yeah. No, no, that is it. I love, I love that you were waxing poetic about baseball. I mean, you're absolutely right about the zen part. And, and Rich, I'm, I'm going to pass it on to you right after this. That, that is just 
magical stuff right there because uh, you almost forget. I haven't played baseball in a long time, Rich. I'm not sure the last time you played baseball, let alone softball, right? <laughs> you know, so it, it there is just something about it that just makes you forget about all the worries, including it's it's existential while making you forget about death. You're you're right. Oh, you know, it is. So. Yeah. It's a wonderful it's thing. It's called being in the zone. In the zone, yeah. yeah. There's a reason why Franklin Roosevelt wanted baseball to happen during World War II, because it, it gives you that sense of whatever it is, whether it's zen, whether it's normalcy, whether it's whatever. And I, and I think, you know, the reason why we're all kind of screaming about, yelling at them about the money and all that is because we just miss it so much. You know, it, it's something that it's a part of our lives, and, and we miss it, and um and Perry, I had one more question for you as an umpire that just about your umpiring experience and that I'd love to learn from you on. And that would be, it's clear that when you're working the plate, you are involved in every pitch. You're, it's, I would assume harder, in quotes, you're not seeing my air quotes, I would assume it's harder to do the plate because you have to be on top of every pitch. However, my question for you is, do you prefer doing the plate because you're involved in every pitch, you're, you're laser focused, and, you, and you're really the home plate umpire. Even though, if, whether or not you're the crew chief, is pretty much controlling the whole game. Or do you prefer to work the bases for the reason being you don't have to be on top of each and every pitch? Um, you know, maybe the bases are. I, I'm not going to use the word easier. I'm going to use the word of um, a little less direct in terms of each and every pitch. So what is your preference? Would you rather be the person everybody's looking at or would you rather be on the bases? <laughs> for a long time, I wanted to work the plate every game, every game for about the first, I don't know, 25, 30 years. But now my attitude is, yeah, you've been there, done that, you do it. So, I, and I actually enjoy mentoring my umpiring partners and training them on the job and watching them progress uh, behind the plate, particularly as they, you know, gain experience. Um, So I don't, I don't, I'm not a plate hogger anymore. I probably used to be um, just because I, I love being back there so much. And, and I had a lot of, you know, side issues attached to doing it. You know, like it was, the best way I could think of to prove that I was in charge out there, even though as a plate umpire and a crew chief, managers would still ignore me, you know, and, and go to my partners for uh, counsel about a particular play. You know, they they knew how to be extremely annoying. Um, but I just, uh, I learned how to handle situations like that. And, um, you know, still think of myself as, Worthy and valuable, in spite of you know people trying to make me think that I wasn't. But most of that, I think, in the past, thankfully, the women that are out umpiring now are receiving much better. Uh, they're getting much better reception, and um, you know much more support than in previous years. We're not such an anomaly. We're uh, much less rare than we used to be, and I think the more women that people see out there umpiring at Little League, uh, high school, and college, 
And we are becoming a lot more frequent in the last 10 years, especially. Um, it's very encouraging. So, um, And the, the more frequently people see women empires out there, the less of a curiosity uh, we, we will become, you know, because, gosh, I still, people still walk up to me and say, wow, you're the first woman umpire I've ever seen. And I, I, I mean, to me, that's just insane. Like, that shouldn't be happening in 2020. Surely they've seen a, a woman umpire baseball somewhere, but apparently not. So I'm happy to say that I think by the time I die, that there will be enough that the effects that, um, you know, that women that umpired before me and in, within my um, era, uh, if you will, or, and the era that will uh, follow me with women that I work with now who will, you know, mentor and bring in other women, um, that, you know, we'll be okay and that women will, uh, women, our numbers will keep multiplying, which, again, I is only going to be good for umpiring in general and for baseball in general because it's not a zero-sum game. We're not going to be taking the spot away from a deserving male. Um, we're, we're going to be adding to um, the luster of umpiring as a profession because we, we demand the best of it and we'll be giving the best to it, you know, and leading by example. Every single one of the women that I've ever umpired with well, not every single one, but with very few exceptions, uh, all of the women that I have umpired with uh, have been just incredible, you know, multitaskers and great, great umpires and partners. And so I, I have high hopes that our increased participation at all levels, you know, amateur and professional, will only augur well for the future of baseball, professional and amateur. Let's hope, uh, you know, because I hate to think of, you know, how many people will just be driven away in disgust if they don't figure some way to come to an agreement about this season, which I think should be let's end it right now and start planning for next year instead of waiting until the agreement expires and then, you know, sitting down all upset right from the start, you know, we can start from a perspective of patience and willingness to, uh, you know, work forward, you know, and make missteps along the way, but we can go back and figure it out anyway. Um, So let's hope that can still happen. I know I'm I'm with you. Uh, anybody, I'd love to see even a 48 game season. Although I don't know how they're going to do it and let people into the ballpark. Truly, it, it'll it'll be it, it'll be a real uh, task for baseball to figure that one out. I don't think it's possible because, like you said, there are so many moving parts and so many variables that need to be um, uh, worked into integrated into any plan to do that that I actually think it's an impossible task. If there is anything that's impossible, it would be that, especially with the attitudes that we've seen from management and labor so far. They're just not willing to get things done quickly. I think we've all seen that. Um, no. Perry, I'll tell you this, though. Perry, I'll tell you this, though. They'll get it done quickly if it has to do with getting people back into the ballpark, even if it means every three to four seats or whatever it would be. 
one of the things yeah. I find most interesting about that is that the Texas teams, the Astros and the Rangers, are saying that the Texas governor is all about it. I mean, he's like, you know, oh, you know, no problem here. Bring, bring people to the ballpark. And, and now you may have a situation where if they do play, there's, a, there's thought that they'll allow the local jurisdictions to determine whether or not there's fans, which is interesting because the Mets and Yankees, I don't really see having fans but in the ballparks, but maybe the Rangers and Astros do, and maybe the Diamondbacks, where you are, Perry, maybe they do. I'm not sure what the case rate is like there, but um, maybe the Diamondbacks. It would be so weird to see ball, some ballparks have fans, other ballparks not have fans. And the question is, what do you do with the money? So I read that, too, where – Let's just say the Texas Rangers and the, and the Astros and half the teams are having fans. Do you take that money and give it spread it among the owners to help defray these losses, or do the like traditional where the walk up sales and all that belong only to the home team? They'd have to figure all that out. Um, uh, can I just, and so, can I just say I think I think that if like you know New York cannot be on uh, the list, then. You know, I kind of under I kind of would understand it where where they would be sharing it, but at the same time, I also do understand leaving it up to the jurisdictions because some places are are better than others. Now, obviously, the problem is, and we shall see in the next few weeks regarding these protests, where will the it will the spike occur if you have these? Because you know you're going to have to have these lines be every six feet. I mean, we do have precedent now. There has been an entire level of industry amongst many places that has been regulating amongst like tape on the floor, and obviously it would probably be something different over there as to what the actually probably the same thing. Uh, well, you know. We, and, and, and even if this means that, like, they think they can open it up to New York in September or October, or, or and hopefully October, right? Uh, and I mean among the National League only, uh, except for the time where the only time to beat anybody is the New York Yankees. But, um, you know, it, there's just many things to think about, And but I do understand, Rich, in terms of leaving it up to the jurisdiction. I do, too. I do, too. And um, so, folks, you've been listening to the Metsian Podcast. This is a special edition with minor league baseball umpire, spring training umpire, a trailblazer for women in sports, Perry Barber. It has been a thrill to have you, Perry. And I have um, one more, because I could do this all night. I, mean, I, I can ask you umpiring questions about your experiences on the field and all that. I just find it fascinating. But I'll try to be kind to you and, and, and ask you one more question about on-the-field experiences. Oh, um, don't be kind. Don't be kind. I, I won't feel right. <laughs> and then I'll ask Sam if he has any. somebody boos me, I, I, I think something's got to be wrong. <laughs> so. There you go. There you go. Um, so but what I was going to ask you was, um, and I it might be, you don't have to name a certain player, but uh, – Thinking about players that maybe we all know about, guys you've umpired in, in spring training games, can you think of what a player would do? Now, you mentioned a manager, and I thought that was terrible because I have a daughter myself who's very into sports, so I completely understand what you're saying, where the manager would come out and, and ask uh, another male umpire, I would assume, uh, about a, qu- a question or try to say, look, I'm making this double switch to the male instead of you if you were behind the plate, which is horrible. Right. Um, and I, That would be something a, a, a manager would do. I'm sorry, go ahead. Right. Yeah, to but, bypass the umpire who made the decision. That's a big no-no. That's showing absolutely. disrespect and not knowing the rules, too. 
because there's a rule about how to do that. You have to ask the umpire who made the decision to ask his or her partner for help. You can't go to another umpire and say, hey, go over there and talk to your partner and tell him that he blew the call. Uh, and any manager that does that, you know, gets the cold shoulder by both umpires or all four, usually. So it's, yep. it's there in the rule book. They have to observe the protocol. And if they don't, umpires, I, I won't say they they have to ignore his request, uh, but they have a right to, um, you know, depending upon the conduct and the uh, sincerity of the, the, the asking manager. Um, umpires don't always get together when they really should. Like what happened when Jim Joyce called the player safe in the otherwise yeah. perfect game that I'm on the gallery. Yeah. They should have gotten together. Oh, yeah, yeah. That is just like, yeah, like, and and another thing, too, uh, about that is that I think there was a precedent. Everybody was like, well, you know, you got to return uh, the 85 uh, Kansas City Royals, you know, you have a blah, blah, blah. Like, like, with that specific call, that would have ended the game. The commissioner's office... Bud Seelig didn't have to be all official about it with, like, the original traditions because that would have – the official thing would have ended the game from a, a win perspective. It just would have officially – on the record books. And you should totally – this could totally – you could retroact of this because we know this would have ended the game. We've seen it. It's something that can be corrected, completely corrected. It it could have, and, and to my way of thinking, it should have been, even though the protocol by the umpires would have been not properly observed. But I think in that situation, it was definitely called for, and why they didn't it just, you know, it, it be, so Jim Joyce made the call. Why didn't they just walk over to him and say, listen, we know you made the call, and, you know, according to the rules, we shouldn't be over here putting in our two sense worth but you know you, you can listen to us for the next 20 seconds or you can uh, bear the consequences of it for the next 20 years uh, you know because you've got two choices here you can stick with your call or you can think about it and change your own call because you have reconsidered it and understood that the player is actually out um, and that you know you're the only one in the whole damn ballpark that thinks he was safe I mean, literally, um, it, it, to most people, it, it wasn't a whacker. It was a close play, but it wasn't one that, you know, that took a great degree of, um, you know, discernment to see that the runner was safe, uh, to see that the runner was safe, uh, out instead of safe. But they didn't do that. And, and, and the, 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 cra- the crazy thing, too, and I'll pass it on to you about this, Rich, uh, um, is the fact that Jim Joyce was one of the more renowned umpires at the time. Yeah, yeah he was. I mean, he's a pretty good umpire. Yeah. And it's a shame that his reputation was tarnished. But I guess it worked out because, you know, he showed his character. He's a good guy. And, um, you know, it, it's weird that, what is it? Ten years later, I read that Armando Galarraga is doing or something, or some movement is going on to have the results overturned all these years later, which I, I who knows if that's a mistake or not. I think it's a mistake to do it all these years later. They, sh- they should have and could have, could have done it back then, but, but now what kind of message is this I mean, sending? I mean, 
I, I, I mean, it, it would necessarily, especially with all the eyes on baseball now, um, I, I, I don't necessarily yeah. whether it would be like you can always do it. But at the same time, you know, because yeah. I think things are, you know, you're trying to get things more right now. Uh, but in in that term, um, I would be totally for it. Uh, it would be such an easy record change, I think. Huh. Well, okay, interesting. That was a yeah, yeah. That that, that know, was. Uh, oh God, I'm sorry, Perry. I I could be persuaded. Yeah, I I'm conflicted. <laughs> I'm conflicted about so many things. Um, eventually, I have to make up my mind. But yeah, I I could see that definitely. That they've done it, you know, for Ty Cobb's batting record or Napoleon Lajoie, all of these favor researchers that come up with new games and, you know, new plays during innings that weren't counted before and things like that. And so the records get, get changed. They are a fluid thing, not fixed in stone. There is nothing that is fixed in stone, is there, existentially speaking? We are all moving forward or sideways or backwards at different times. And I hope for most of us moving forward, especially with these baseball labor agreements, because the old way of doing things and treating ball players and umpires and, you know, corollary workers right down to clubbies, um, you know, who depend on the kindness and the tips from the underpaid umpires <laughs> and the ball players uh, to whom they provide indispensable services in the clubhouses, right down to, you know, feeding them, doing laundry, you know, keeping the facility clean instead of like a pigsty and, you know, doing numerous other tasks for them. And they're just, they're way underpaid and they're, the umpires are generally expected to pay, I think, geez, 20 years ago, it was $5 a day. It might, it might probably should be more now. Um, but everybody in minor league baseball is just paid a pittance and it's not a way to sustain your viability at the major league level because caring for the health and well-being and nutrition and uh, mental um, resilience of your players as they progress towards the major leagues, I would think would be paramount to any owner or club. Um, But now the the paradigm seems to be shifting towards they're probably going to start mining college teams for players. Um, And who knows what's going to happen with the draft. And they're going to start getting a lot of talent from the Dominican Republic. I mean, they're already doing that at the minor league level. There are a lot of uh, Hispanic players. I don't even know if the percentage is more than more than white players, um, but there are a lot of Hispanic players that come from Dominican Republic, Venezuela, Cuba. <clears throat> so the the complexion and makeup of baseball at that level is very interesting right now. And, uh, we'll see if it turns out to be a positive um, or a, a negative for the future of American kids who want to play baseball at the professional level. Because um, I don't see that as being very promising right now. Um, getting kicking players out of the college ranks and 
sending them to what are they going to start with now? Basically, high A. I, you know, they have to be given time to to see them and experience them. Hopefully, not get injured. Way too many injuries now with kids. So I understand the eagerness to um, capitalize on one's health and stalwart, you know, sturdiness, physical sturdiness, while one can. But still, um, you know, it takes some mental makeup that that can be uh, nurtured uh, and, you know, not necessarily implanted if it wasn't there to begin with, but um, helped to grow and, and uh, grow in the right direction. And a lot of that is missing from professional baseball too, you know. Coaches and, and managers worry about winning and a lot of things get uh, shoved under the table and, and hidden and, you know, there's a culture of, uh, not very good treatment of women that gets covered up and um, things like that. They they have to end. Uh, the culture of silence has to end and trust has to uh, take precedence over the erosion of trust through dishonesty and um, failure to address uh, issues that, you know, matter to the health of the organization as a whole. And that includes, you know, every player's home life, uh, you know, their home life, how they uh, relate to women and treat women and, um, you know, other issues that all go into and, making and a great ball player. Perry, Perry, if you, if you would allow, um, I, I want to bring it back to uh, Jeff Wilpon of the New York Mets who uh, had an issue from an executive level. Uh, within his ranks uh, of a lawsuit, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, and and everything about that, Rich, screamed old bo- old boys club. Everything about the way that um, uh, Leah Castergine's uh, account of the boardroom was was completely just a bunch of you know uh, white men and some like Jeff Wilpon entitled, uh, uh, thinking they can just make these jokes and, and demean, you know, somebody who had worked very hard to get to their position. And, and Rich, I'll, I'll let you go. Yeah, ahead. I never realized the harm that those, those just those small, you know, inflictions of pain and distress upon somebody else cause, uh, at, in the general sense, you know, to the the culture at large, just to not even ever think about stuff like that and perpetuate it and allow it to continue and in some cases to actively participate and if not to participate, to sanction by silence. And so hopefully that's changing now. A lot of that's changing. I think the Me Too movement sparked change within other arenas and, you know, that includes not not just being physically assaulted, but the the small um, slings and arrows that create a culture of disrespect and objectification of women um, that that allowed that behavior to manifest itself at those meetings. Yeah, and that's I, I that I experienced that going to my umpiring association meetings back in the early 1980s 
had to deal with that and, you know, stand my ground and convince people that I wasn't there to find a boyfriend or a husband, but that I was there to, you know, get game like everybody else. And, you know, so anyway, yeah, the culture has to change and, um, God bless everybody that's standing up to do that right now, including you, Sam, and you, Rich. Thank you very much. Having a platform from which to do that is very important. And thank you for sharing it with me. Um, Because, you know, it starts with one listener at a time. It really is a grassroots thing. We have to uh, reach out at a very personal, individual level and Thankfully, some of us have a broader platform than just our families and friends and our immediate orbits um, of acquaintances. So um, it's really important that you're doing this, I I feel. Thank you very much to help people understand that uh, women are not a threat. We're an asset in most cases. We're not an invading force. We're just trying to make things better for everybody and... um, that means sometimes you have to be cruel to be kind. Uh, you have to flush out the toxins and get rid of all the poisons and be stern about it. You can't you can't make allowances for things that are infectious. You really have to just cut them out and only allow in um, good influences, beneficial. Uh, ideas uh, or you know I don't want to say like a closed circuit or you know an impenetrable bubble you always want to allow an opposing viewpoint but just to separate yourself from bad influences and you know we can all do that because most of us recognize bad influences at some point or another even if it takes a while there are a lot of people who are very clever about um, looking like good influences and then turning out to be not so good influences. Uh, I've run into a few sociopaths in my time. I'm sure we all have. They're very good at, at, at convincing people of their sincerity and goodwill when, in fact, they are uh, without empathy or any sort of ability to feel real um, attachment to any other human being. So. Pretty human nature is pretty interesting, and umpire has taught me a lot about it. I'm very lucky that early on I recognized the the, the possibilities that umpiring um, made for that created for me to be able to every game I worked to gain some sort of insight into human nature and how to work with it instead of against it. Uh, which a lot of people do, and, you know, salesmen know how to work with it, um, and I'm no salesman, but when I'm umpiring, I've learned that suppressing certain instincts is not a, it's not, um, it's not an insult to my character or a, uh, an abandonment of my principles. It's a, a knowledge of how to get things done. And so instead of having a 60-second argument with a guy with his cheek bulging out and his eyes all popping out of his head that ends in an injection and me writing an an injection report, instead of that, it's like a couple of questions, and I allow him to vent a little bit of steam, and, and then I say, so what do you want me to do? And he'll say, well, I want you to change your call. And I say, well, I'm not going to do that, so 
um, you know, that, that's the end of this, and, you know, go ahead and go back to the dugout, and we'll start up again, and usually they do. So you, it ends peacefully and quickly instead of extendedly and violently. And that's what I love about umpiring and, and what it has taught me about as a person and as an umpire to be able to resolve conflicts without ratcheting them up and without a loss of um, my own self-esteem uh, um, or feeling that I'm coming off as weak by not, uh, you know, standing my ground or refusing to concede anything. No, it's all about, you know, allowing people to express whatever is bothering them. Most of the time it's just them, just, they just want to be heard because they're frustrated and sometimes with good reason. So, you know, why not give them a listen? Give them, you know, uh, 30 seconds to express their unhappiness. That's really all they want. And then they'll just run out of steam and turn around and walk. And even when it's to uh, rev up a team, you know, or to, you know, get a team energized a lot or to protect the player from getting thrown out. Sometimes a manager will transfer the heat from a player to himself to save the, the player uh, to keep him in the game. Um, but whatever the reason, um, it doesn't happen that often anymore either because of replay. It's, it's sort of taken a lot of the fun of, of, out of those confrontations. And it doesn't always seem like like it makes it any shorter either, which is my big objection. You know, a a confrontation with a player or a manager should never take more than 60 or 90 seconds at the most because that's a long time in baseball chronology. And um, I've seen replay being used where it took more than that. And so what's the point? Down with robot umpires. I want women yeah. before um, before robots. Women before robots. Do you think that? Do you think that's going to happen? Or are we going to see robot umpires in the big leagues before we see women? <laughs> well, it, it was talked about as a COVID nineteen um, mitigation strategy to maybe go with co- robot umpires, but I don't think that that is the current thinking. But that was one thing that was discussed. You at know, when, every when base, uh, for every play at every base, robot umpires behind the plate. How would that even? Why? They had a, they they were talking about having it for behind the plate because that's where the closest contact would be. Um, so, but then I think I haven't heard anything further about that. I think that idea has rightfully gone by the wayside um, of having you know electronic yeah, balls. I mean, you'd have to have cameras trained on every square inch of a baseball diamond, including extending all the way to the outfield. Uh, you'd have to have a camera. Tre- I don't know. I just don't see how it could be done. Because, you know, baseball, mean. there's so much motion and fluidity in it. Anything can happen anywhere at any time. And, you know, if you have, what do you have, pop-up cameras that pop up at second base or third base when when the, like, motion-activated cameras that pop up or something? The only, the only way that I would see it, the only way that I would see it is that it's literally programmed in every single base. And it ends up being eventually just this this complete and other scan that's being done of the entire diamond, I guess. I mean, who knows what the future entails, but that's the only thing that I could think right. of, of happening, really. Yeah. Well, judging from the quality of the home plate robo-umpires that I've seen in action from my friends that have used it in the Atlantic League, technology is not... Um, <laughs> Not currently available. 
the, cur- the technology that is currently available needs some serious tweaking, uh, if you ask me. The, those robot umpires, uh, I don't know if I could handle a robot umpire telling me a pitch that I could clearly see is not a strike being called a strike. And, yeah, I... <laughs> I I admire the umpires. I know quite a few in the Atlantic League last year that were charged with um, being the guinea pigs for that technology, and I know it wasn't easy for them. Yeah, but there's a lot about umpiring that is counterintuitive. You learn how to um, quell some instinctive responses, you know, and to channel the free flow of uh, adrenaline and in men's cases testosterone that only adds to the chaos instead of um, corralling it and bringing it into a manageable um, group. So yeah, umpiring is great. Any, everybody should umpire. It's really fun. It's it's not about what most people's image of umpiring is, which is which is of umpires getting yelled at. That is such a fleeting ephemeral, inconsequential part of the overall experience of being out there and just becoming one with the baseball and with with everything that's going on and feeling that focus just sort of humming through your whole body and, you know, being able to plan ahead and, and position yourself to be ready for something that's going to happen two or three plays down the line and to have it work out so that you're perfectly positioned for it when it does happen and that you wait, you know, just the perfect amount of time to make sure that the play is completely over and that, you know, the the fielder has secure possession of the ball so that he doesn't wind up dropping it and you've already called out and then you have to change your call to space because the ball is on the ground. I mean, things like that are just such an extraordinary experience. And, you know, it's not obviously like hitting a home run or, you know, scoring the winning run and being the hero. But umpiring to me is so valuable because it teaches you really that the greatest um, praise and applause come from within each of us that we are our own best appreciators and that when we learn that and learn to respect that about ourselves and other people, um, you know, then competition becomes, that's when competition becomes healthy um, and and you're not competing to uh, beat somebody. Um, you're competing to improve yourself and to be the best uh, vision and version of yourself that you can be and in in the process to raise up, you know, people along with you, you know, because the rising tide lifts all boats. Um, And I like to think that, that I bring out the best in my umpiring partners because they don't want to be put to shame that I can umpire rings around them, even the ones that are 40 years younger than I am, Um, you know, so they all just work a little harder, pay a little closer attention, you know, look a little sharper, um, you know, and it's fine if they're doing it just to impress me. That's perfectly fine. But, you know, ultimately it's for their own self-improvement. And that's a lot of what umpiring is too, is that mentoring aspect of being a leader and setting an example and bringing out the best in everybody around you. 
you know, by allowing them to um, see the example that you set, you know, of uh, calmness and composure in the face of chaos all around you. You know, everybody likes that. It's, uh, you want to you wanna be able to depend on people like that, you know, because a lot of people kind of lose it very easily. And it's easy to do that nowadays, you know, to become very anxious and upset about little things. <laughs> you know, we've been deprived of human touch and comfort for months now. And a lot of us seeing all, all our hard work at staying isolated and observing the guidelines go for naught, you know, as uh, people start violating them or acting like, you know, nothing is wrong, that everything's okay when it's really not. Cases are spiking all over the place, and in a couple of weeks, who knows what's going to be happening. It's very um, concerning. But still, life is is worth living, and, um, you know, it's beautiful, and baseball is beautiful, and the the most beautiful thing about baseball is that it is is for everybody, uh, that everybody can play it and enjoy it at any any level um, of perception. And that um, baseball uh, demands, you know, a certain quality of thought and introspection that is valuable to us as human beings. And that we we can learn from it because in baseball, failure is uh, so much more frequent than success. You know, the hitter that hits 300 for a season is doing a great job, meaning seven out of ten times he doesn't do anything or does something that's not good. Um, so we can learn, when we learn from our failures and mistakes and missteps and just look at them, you know, without anxiety or shame or embarrassment and say, hey, I made a mistake here. Can you help me figure out what I did wrong so that I don't do it again? Or when you get to the point where you can do that by yourself, which as an umpire, Uh, I have learned to do, you know, if I screw up a play, I'll immediately say to myself, well, I was a couple of steps too far in and I allowed myself to get blocked out of the, of the play um, because I didn't uh, uh, predict the possibility of the player turning around and making a swipe tag. I thought he would be over there, you know, things like that. Uh, You learn from experience. And that's what I love about baseball, that after 40 years, Every game is still so illuminating and instructive and teaches me so much and allows me to feel that sort of blessed, uh, I don't know, that that blessed harmony of being one with the planet, you know, for just a couple of hours. It's such a beautiful experience. really appreciate that about umpiring and about baseball, even about just sitting there and watching the game from the stands. Um, you know, it's the same thing. If you if you focus on what's right in front of you, what's happening right in front of you, uh, it's it's really um, magnificent. And you know, being alive and being able to do that is you know a blessing. Uh, you know, we're all blessed with the ability to do that. So. No, you're you're right, yeah. and and um, and so unfortunately, while this has been a very Wonderful discussion. It's always great having you on, Perry. And and you go back with us um, six years, as, as we um, talked about a little bit on email. I go know. I'm going to have to listen to that. <laughs> to a different podcast. And um, 
and it's been a while, and it was one of my favorites then, and this has been one of my favorites now. Unfortunately, we are out of time, um, but I did want to thank you, oh, Perry Barber, yeah. for joining us tonight. <laughs> and, um, you know, for those who missed the beginning, uh, Perry's done so much in her career. She's a trailblazer in terms of um, women and umpiring and, and not only that, but also bringing other women along in, in the profession and also for baseball in general. I did not know um, until earlier tonight about your, your musical career where you know, you've not just dabbled in the guitar. You know, you've done a lot and writing songs and, and playing guitar and, and being the opening act for some, for some major acts like Springsteen. So um, a very accomplished person. Yeah, and that's, it has that's been my sordid past. I refer to it as my sordid past. Yeah. Well, only <laughs> sorted in the sense that you've done a lot of different things, and it's tough to sort them out. But, I mean, you've done a lot of amazing things <laughs> in your life. And, um, and, and we really, really enjoy the time with you. So, um, so Sam, I don't know if you have any closing comments here. Hey, thank you, Rich. Thank you. Uh, I appreciate it. Oh, yeah. Thank oh, you. of course. Uh, and uh, I just have to say, uh, I guess the only closing comments that I could say is that I, I have four sisters and two moms and i still think that uh, even the, the the ones who are the most on the side of the other gender from the male perspective uh make a lot of mistakes uh, and and that's that's the only thing you know i i, I you know I, my my dad was you know an actor uh, loved broadway uh even though he was a very straight male which of course the the Broadway thing is 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 sometimes attributed uh, in a stereotypical way with uh, this flam of a flamboyant nature, if you will, and it, it, it's still that like every the way I was basically raised uh, was was around women that you know that was just it, and uh, I, I I still think that I make plenty of mistakes when it comes to understanding uh, of what we're supposed to do here. And I, I just wanted to end yeah. with that, basically. Yeah. Sure we're all going to stumble around in the dark for a while. Um, so yeah, try not to get, you know, focused on, you know, doing the wrong thing and not being able to recover. So the the big thing is just to stay healthy and be thoughtful of our neighbors and friends and encourage everybody to um, be smart <laughs> and just do what we can to keep ourselves alive and thriving because um, this is going to end or at least it's going to improve at some point. And we want to be able to come out ahead of the curve and prepared for the changes that are definitely going to emerge from all of this um, in every arena of life, especially baseball. Yeah, Amen baseball, to that. Get on it, please. Yeah, we want you back. We want you back, but we want you back smart and safe and equitable. That's what we want. And I can't think of a better place to end it. That was so well done, and um, it's a very good wrap-up. We want baseball back. That's why we do this. 
We want it back equitably. We want it back fairly. And we want it back so everybody partaking from players to umpires to broadcasters to grounds crew is safe. And that's the most important thing. Maybe by the next time we talk, um, we will be able to say that they have an agreement. I know uh, as I was thinking about it, the owners made that first offer to the players May 11th, and we thought that was going to be the big week. Then the week of May 18th, well, that was going to be the big week, you know, get a deal done. Then it was Memorial Day week, and then last week it was the first week of June because, you know, they were supposed to have a deal by June 1st. Well, that came and went. So maybe this is the week. Let's hope. I've been stalking Twitter as, as a little bit here, and uh, nothing new going on, yes. no news to yes. report. Nice. Um, so, Perry, thank you very much. Sam, as always, my friend, thank you very much. Typically we do a last word, but we are significantly over. So what I'll do is I'll leave this with um, with thanking Perry once again and saying you're always welcome to join us. Um, you have so my much delight. to offer. It's been a wonderful conversation. Appreciate it. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Perry. And Sam, my friend, thank you very much. Everyone, you've been listening mm-hmm. to the Metzian Podcast, a very special edition with umpire Perry Barber. And we'd like to wish you a very safe and pleasant good evening. So good night, everyone. Let's go Mets. Let's go Mets. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.